Welcome to The Reserve, a news and thoughts podcast from The Central Verse. I'm your host, Caleb Nygaard, and today is episode number 31. David Zaring is the Elizabeth F. Putzel Professor of Legal Studies and Business Ethics at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School of Business. David, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here. And I'm always as ever grateful to have Stephen Kelly here as well. Welcome back, Stephen. Hey, Caleb. Hey, David. Hey. So the relationship between the Fed and bank regulators and supervisors uh, more broadly and those they regulate and supervise uh, has been in the news in the last couple of weeks and months. Uh, and we are excited to have David on as one of the leading experts on this topic and um, relevant. We're going to get to some of those those hot topics uh, in the news from Sarah Bloom Raskin's uh, uh, nomination and the the ending thereof uh, to a to a report out of the Washington Post about some hires at the Boston Fed that are raising some questions. But before we do, and actually probably for the kind of the bulk of the conversation, uh, David has two excellent papers. Uh, and, and when we normally talk about papers, it's normally like you've read the abstract, but I've actually read both of these papers from beginning to end. And that wasn't necessarily my plan when I started, but they're just really great papers. So the links will also be in the show notes as well, uh, because I'm sure we're not going to get to every part of this. So, so people should check, uh, check those out. Um, but the first one is called uh, Banks, Corporatism, and Collaboration in the Administrative State. And I really like one of the uh, kind of an, an intro. And, and I'm going to start with kind of a longer uh, quote than I, than I normally would. So kind of bear with me. Uh, but I think it just sets up really well uh, how it's normally viewed. And then we're going to it's going to build into kind of the way that David is framing it, the way that you frame it uh, for the rest of this paper. So I'm going to read this, this, this quote here. It says, um, Traditionally held, it's traditionally held that, and now I'm beginning to quote, that transparency and process creates better regulation through sunlight and reasoned decision-making. The judicial review checks regulatory abuses where sunlight and reasoned decision-making do not, and that a utilitarian, utilitarian assessment of the merits of regulation is essential. Now instead, and this is where David, you're, you're starting to begin your pitch here, the banking regulators offer a different approach to administration, one that is collaborative and corporatist rather than adversarial and legalized. Financial regulation is better analyzed under a collaborative model of administrative governance rather than an adversarial one. Such corporatist models impose some obligations on firms to serve the public good. I think that's just I think that's just really interesting. So so let's just start at the top. Kind of talk about the relationship between regulators and bankers and how that's different from other regulated regulator kind of uh, relationships. Well, uh, and thanks for the kind words about the article, um, yeah. uh, which uh, you know brings together a few things I've been thinking about for uh, quite a while. Um, and I guess. You know, one of the things that uh, prompted the article was thinking about how just different banking regulation is from the kind of regulation that um, uh, I used to do, be an administrative lawyer for the Department of Justice, and, uh, you know, banking regulation is in some ways a variant of administrative law. But classically, you know, administrative law featured this sort of adversarial process, and maybe the model for thinking about it was thinking about the Environmental Protection Agency uh, and the big rules that it could impose that impose substantial costs on various kinds of businesses. And so they and public interest groups like the Sierra Club and the uh, uh, um, uh, Environmental Defense Fund and, and organizations like that would really watch the agency like a hawk, um, and it would try to 
make policy with input from whoever uh, were its lead appointees from whatever administration was in power um, in a way that sort of uh, made sure that these stakeholders had an opportunity to participate in the process uh, and could vindicate their rights with lawsuits if they weren't happy with how the regulatory process had gone. And that's just really not how the relationship between banking regulators and banks works at all. Um, there's no litigation. Uh, there's not the same kind of um, sort of uh, public interest group that's starting to change a little bit, but there's not the kind of sort of environmental protection groups out there that there um, that there is what is for an agency like EPA. Um, and um, the relationship isn't very transparent. Um, especially when it comes to supervision. The supervisors are often at the bank uh, for the largest yeah. banks. They go to work every day at the bank. Um, uh, they have a very sort of hard to see relationship with the bank. Um, there was this really interesting series that I'm sure you guys are familiar with on This American Life about yeah. uh, uh, you know, the way that the Federal Reserve Bank of New York uh, interacted with Goldman Sachs and there was a whistleblower out there who thought it was way too collaborative relationship that the, um, that the regulators, uh, the supervisors weren't doing enough sort of supervision and careful scrutiny of what it is, um, you know, the banks that are supposed to regulate were sort of up to. So I thought those are just a really different kind of process. And, you know, I thought it was different in five ways in particular, you know, there's, uh, like I said, no litigation. Uh, very little congressional supervision over the financial regulators. They um, manage their own budgets, and uh, so there's no power of the purse. Um, uh, there's very little White House supervision over financial regulators. That's not the case with EPA, um, which has to get its rules through the Office of Management and Budget, which is part of the White House, um, and uh, uh, includes an administrator who is removable uh, for any reason or no reason uh, as the president sees fit. Uh, financial regulators, including the, the board at the Fed, uh, only enjoy for-cause removal protections. Yeah. Uh, they don't uh, justify their rulemaking through cost-benefit analysis with OMB. They've always viewed that as not uh, appropriate. Um, uh, that would be a, a impinge on the independence of these regulators. Um, and so there's not that White House check. Um, there's not the... Um, uh, there's not the uh, um, uh, cost benefit analysis check required um, of uh, most agencies within the executive branch, every agency, I guess. And then also there's, um, uh, you know, a lot of uh, lack of transparency of what exactly is going on, especially when it comes to supervision. It's really hard to know uh, who's doing what and, uh, and uh, financial regulators have a various uh, 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 mechanisms that they can use to keep um, uh, whatever's been going on in the supervisory process confidential. Um, uh, and indeed, that's part of Fed policy uh, and bank regulatory policy is not to reveal um, the sort of um, concerns that supervisors have uh, about the banks they supervise, except in the sort of most ungranular granular way you can imagine. Um, and so all of this is really different. Um, and frankly, uh, from the perspective of traditional administrative law, looks kind of terrible. It looks like um, uh, not for the most sympathetic um, people out there, because the people who are getting um, the short end of the stick on this are banks, uh, which you know don't get to go to Congress, don't get to go to president, don't get a cost benefit analysis, don't get to litigate, so no judicial protection. Uh, you know, don't um, uh, don't really have the ability to sort of uh, monitor what their supervisors are doing or if the, what the supervisors are doing is different from what the way that other banks are being supervised. All of this stuff 
uh, is the kind of thing that wouldn't pass muster in most other contexts. And yet that's what we see in financial regulation. And so that's just a, a really interesting puzzle that I wanted to sort of uh, explain and then unpack. Yeah, it, it really is. It's one of those things. I mean, as you're as you're talking as well, I just I kind of like Paul Tucker has been in my mind because he's got a new book coming out uh, later this fall. But just this, the spirit of like these independent agencies and how their designs end up, you know, having a huge impact on on the way that they they do their work and how it's really easy to lump them all together as as regulators, uh, but they end up having very different. Um, relationships uh here as well which is which is really important and and is really interesting at any time uh but i think there's extra attention these days to uh uh to how the to how the system is is designed and governed i don't know if necessarily congress will do anything about it i actually doubt that they will yeah. uh but but they're talking about it and there are some you know senator for example senator toomey or uh, congressperson uh, congressman hill are talking about these these you know big structural changes to how the 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 federal financial regulatory system works, and when it's traditionally been more on the left, and so there's all these conversations where this is actually quite important and quite salient. Yeah, it's um, it, I mean, it's definitely a jerry rig system. Of course, you wouldn't, you know, set you know two uh, Federal Reserve banks in Missouri and <laughs> one for the entire Western United States, and you know one yeah. for Cleveland. Um, uh, it's um, and um, you know uh, this sort of weirdness. I think is surprisingly common in the federal government. You know, we have yeah. too many bank regulators and too uh, sort of distributed a Federal Reserve, for that matter. But um, uh, this sort of path dependency isn't totally uncommon. Um, yeah. And and regulation and financial regulation. You know, everyone wonders why there's a CFTC and an SEC, and maybe someday that'll be rationalized. But uh, people have been talking about rationalizing that for a long time, and it hasn't happened. So, yeah. you know, we'll see if uh, we'll see if uh, financial regulation goes the same way or not. Yeah. David, can you talk a little bit about the role for the DOJ? Because you mentioned how there's not really like, you know, a White House oversight role, but the DOJ does have a role in sort of interpretation of banking law. You know, when, for instance, President Biden has a couple of recent executive orders that sort of address the Fed, the OCC, the FDIC, and the DOJ, you know, it kind of provides an explicit role for the DOJ. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that relationship, what that's like, how you know, is that up to them to decide how big of a force they want to be in banking regulation? Yeah, here I kind of follow along the lines of um, Pierre Verdier, who may well be a guest on this podcast at some point in the future. He's a, he's a, a finance, um, uh, you know, banking law guy at the University of Virginia Law School. And um, he views, I'm not uh, quite as concerned as he is about the process, but he views sort of um, uh, the kind of criminal enforcement that you get from DOJ or uh, or or sometimes even state um, uh, DAs or attorneys general as sort of a wild card kind of regulation that's increasingly, you know, top of mind to bank compliance departments and general counsels. And so, um, you know, I did a study and I looked at, um, you know, where's where is the regulatory risk for financial institutions if you, um, uh, by which I mean for large banks, um, uh, if you just count up the number of fines that they uh, face from various agencies. And if you do that, like DOJ is about 85% of the regulatory risk. Uh, now, of course, that's not the only kind of supervision that the Fed or the OCC or whoever the FDIC is um, 
not the FDIC that much for these really big banks, but um, the, uh, that these rate agencies are imposing on these these big banks. But um, but when it comes to a matter of dollars paid to the federal government, um, you see that the Department of Justice has an important role to play. Um, super important role to play in, in uh, assessing those kinds of fines. And, and what's it looking for? Um, I think that's amped up the salience of anti-money laundering and terrorism finance compliance, uh, where a lot of their cases come out of that. They also had this pretty weird, along with the SEC, sort of like, let's hit every bank, uh, large bank in the wake of the financial crisis with one big fine for deceptive, uh, disclosures to investors on sort of residential mortgage related stuff. And, uh, you know, um, that was the, that was the policy. No bankers go to jail. Uh, everybody pays a big fine and we move on. Um, and so, um, I think that is really important. Um, uh, in addition, banks are, uh, the DOJ has moved from this model of sort of maybe we'll convict some bankers uh, to maybe we won't, but we'll make them sign a deferred prosecution agreement or a non-prosecution agreement. And what that means is the bank says, uh, you know, for the next three or four years, we promise to keep our nose clean. We promise to implement all these internal controls. Uh, banks don't like this, but sometimes they hire a monitor to make sure they're complying with the agreement. And as long as um, they meet the terms of the agreement with prosecutors, then, um, uh, then once the three or four years are over, or however long it is, then the indictment will be dismissed and the bank can move on with its life. Um, hopefully improved by the governance measures it sort of took on as part of the DPA or the NPA. And, you know, one concern about this is also transparency. And, and you know, here I go again, uh, you know, playing a violin for, you know, extremely large and uh, well-resourced banks. Um, but, uh, you know, it's never really been clear, like, so what, What's supposed to be, you know, in an MPA? What isn't? When do you have to get a monitor? When don't you? How big is the fine supposed to be? How do we arrive at that number? Um, and um, anyway, um, so it could be that we'll get a memo from the Deputy Attorney General, sort of outlining how they're thinking about this kind of stuff. Um, that might be welcome. Um, it could be that uh, we'll get a bit more transparency about what's in DPAs or MPAs. Um, it's sort of irritating to have to FOIA those kinds of agreements to see what exactly. Um, you know, the government, what, what the government's imposing on banks and if they're, you know, does it, is it enough? Is it too much? You know, like all of these are sort of questions that are up in the air with regard to DOJ more generally. Now, when I was there, I was in the civil division um, and I wasn't doing much offensive litigation. It was mostly sort of defending the government when it did something uh, uh, suable over and the government often just thinks it can get sued over. So I was doing a lot of that. Yeah, interesting. So, so then it kind of like to to put it in just like as simple of terms as possible. Like, or why don't banks sue their regulators more? Oh, they have a lot to talk about, and you know we we uh, have listened to uh, Bill Nelson at the Bank Policy Institute. You know they have lobbying firms, they have people that are out speaking their word, and they can complain about capital levels or, or or different things. But but litigation isn't really ever part of the a part of it. Is is that that there's not a mechanism to do so, or the courts have said that they won't really take those kind of cases. Maybe give us just kind of the yeah summary for why why that is the case. To me, it's a little bit of a mystery for sure. Now, I mean, I think one thing 
that's going on here is uh, without wanting to, I think on one hand, supervision is this extremely different kind of uh, regulation. Um, but in other ways, supervision is just like an inspection regime, right? Uh, so you got uh, meatpacking inspectors at the meatpacking plant, you got nuclear safety inspectors at the nuclear power plant. And, you know, um, the same thing's kind of going on in financial regulation. And they're even after similar kinds of things. They're after like tail risk, big bad events, you know, which can cause a lot of harm. That's what the inspectors are looking for. Um, and, um, you know, uh, I think the USDA gets sued by farmers. Um, and I think that um, uh, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission also gets sued to some degree, um, maybe not a ton, by nuclear power plant operators. And yet, like, banks almost never litigate against uh, the bank regulators, including the Fed. And, uh, you know, you can look at the Fed's annual reports, uh, which I do in the paper, um, uh, over, you know, the 10 years of the 2010s, you know, banks got sued, or banks sued the Fed, far, anybody sued the Fed, far less than EPA was sued uh, by just about everybody. Um, and, um, uh, and the few times that the Federal Reserve did get sued, um, you know, uh, uh, individual banks were almost never plaintiffs. Um, uh, even more, uh, nor were, you know, bankers associations that individual banks could hide behind, like the ABA or the BPI or the ICWA. Um, it didn't never happen, but it happened like twice in the decade. Um, and there's just nothing like that um, with, I think, other agencies with regard to how their relationship goes with regulated industry. So, so what's going on here? I don't know. The conventional wisdom is that um, uh, that banks uh, are afraid of suing their regulators because they expect that the regulators will retaliate against them, mm -hmm. and that just sounds like terrible administrative law, right? So um, you know, uh, you're you're scared um, that you're going to get uh, uh, you know slapped for invoking your legal rights uh, by your supervisor. Um, you know, that just sounds like the worst kind of regulatory relationship you could possibly imagine. But um, we don't exactly know if that's exactly what's going on there, but um, it could be right that um, the banks just have the process so wired that these guys are just pussycats. And so why sue um, uh, when times are so good? Um, but uh, it's it's really weird. It's just uh, totally different from the way the rest of the administrative state works. Um, and if it is the fact that banks don't sue because banks are scared of the consequences of you know standing up for their rights, that, that doesn't sound too good. Yeah, so uh, just curious, and I'm gonna ask you to predict the future a little bit here. Uh, given sort of the more expansive role that sort of political discourse is starting to assign to bank regulators, things like climate, et cetera, does that bode for other, you know, the, just like the EPA gets sued, is the Fed going to get sued on climate grounds? Yeah, yeah, I think it, I think it, it could well, you know, I think the SEC's um, climate disclosure rule, which it just came out with last week, I think it was, um, is definitely going to be litigated. The SEC, so that's the securities regulator, you know, they get sued all the time too, um, you know, in every rulemaking industry, I usually take them take them to court um uh and if they don't you know an interest group will so um uh so as the fed starts moving into this sort of more controversial territory and i guess away from supervision or monetary policy monetary policy the reason they don't get sued over that is they can't be uh, courts have said we aren't going to review this even on a sort of rational basis chevron deference with the technical term for the the ordinary standard um the ordinary standard review applied by agencies courts have said look we're just not in the business of second guessing the Fed on, you know, what 
what the appropriate monetary policy is going to be. So we're not even going to try to go there. Um, so monetary policy, you know, one of the key things they do, they're, they're uh, immune from suit, essentially. Um, and then in bank regulation, I think it's not great that they there's no judicial oversight of any of these guys. But um, uh, um, but I think that, that that could change if bank regulation turns into you know, um, stuff that, uh, you know, uh, more litigation happy people are, are concerned about, you know, equity, um, DEI, um, inclusion, and climate, most obviously. Um, so we'll see. Uh, it could be that um, we're in for a more a lawsuit heavy future, but, uh, you know, we're starting from a really low base. Yeah. And I wonder, and here again, a, a novice uh, just observing this, I wonder to the degree that the, they brought up the monetary policy stuff impacts the, because the monetary policy and so much of the financial regular, regulatory system happens within the, you know, the, the Fed's structure. I wonder if that has it like a you know, it just happens to be under the same umbrella. It doesn't have to be. And some countries have their bank examiners and their monetary policies yeah. much more divided than 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 we do here. Uh, and so that 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 I think argument makes makes some sense as well. There's also this, and I wonder if you can uh, touch on this at all. That there's this idea that that the the I, I love this quote actually. And I'm actually gonna let me just go ahead. I was gonna bring it up later, so I'll just bring it up now. Anyways, uh, you say in the paper, banking is like defense. We're both industry and the government want the same thing: a stable banking system with profitable banks with strong balance sheets. Uh, close quote. And I think that I think that's that's really true, and that's uh, that's an important. Um, an important point, and it kind of comes back to the other idea that maybe makes banks unique, and is just their fragility, and this idea of bank runs, and how you know, and, and not just on, you know, deposits like we saw in 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 the 30s or whatever in the depression, and 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 not just money market fund, but also like money market funds in 2008, and you know, the treasury market in 2019 and 2020, and. Well, the whole financial system in 2020 for for a brief period, uh, there's just this idea that things can just run and 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 we need to, you know, we should maybe treat that industry that is subject to that potential for run differently. I don't know. I don't know. Like I said, I'm just kind of thinking. Yeah. About no, I think that's exactly that. right. I mean, I think that is like uh, one half of the why do we have this regime story. Um, it's out there. So one is um, the danger, you know, so like the reason the banks and the Fed agree um, uh, that, you know, the what we don't want is a financial panic where a bunch of banks go bankrupt, often not through their own fault. Like, um, you know, you think yeah. of the last financial crisis, and I'm not sure, you know, if Morgan Stanley or Goldman Sachs thought they'd made the mistakes that Lehman Brothers had made. But, you know, the fact was, if they didn't get rescue, um, a controversial rescue, they might have, uh, and, you know, endured the same fate. Um, and this sort of knowledge that we're sort of all in it together and that things can go badly wrong, I think is one thing that aligns the interests of bankers and their regulators. Um, and, uh, it's one of the reasons I, you know, I characterize the whole thing as sort of um, a corporatist enterprise where, you know, uh, just as you said uh, on that quote, um, banks and the regulators kind of want the same thing, stable banks with strong balance sheets. And then I also think there's a, um, 
a sort of public service component to this, which I don't think is unique to banking particularly, yeah. but this is where I think the defense industry or the you know power provision industry analogy makes sense. Um, and not everyone would totally agree with this, but there's this idea that we want um, banks to be providing services, extending credit to people. That's one of the goals. It's been an important priority of the federal government for forever, including the controversial first bank and second bank of the United States and all that stuff. Um, and uh, they, because they want that, uh, they want that provision of credit out there that it's sort of a quasi public service in some ways. And so that's why the sort of tight relationship between the government and banking is a bit more forgivable because, you know, government wants some of the things that banking does for it. Um, uh, I say some people go really far in this direction. They say kind of banks are sort of like, uh, they're basically, you know, public sector entities, or they should be thought of that way. Sally Amarova feels that way. The former um, OCC nominee, Bob Hockett's our co-author on this. Um, there's some other academics who have sort of said, um, it's not corporatist uh, public-private collaboration. It's really like a sort of public franchise that uh, banks have a right to use. And so therefore, you know, they should be regulated in the public interest for that reason. Um, so I don't think that's totally different from what I'm saying. I think uh, it goes a little further down the road than I go. I look at it as a public-private partnership, but, you know, it's sort of along that that idea that, um, you know, the government sort of uh, is responsible for credit extension in the last analysis. It creates the monetary supply and all that kind of stuff. And, and then banks facilitate that money creation process. And that's not totally different from sort of along the lines of what I'm saying is that this is really a tight relationship uh, rather than the sort of contested relationship that like environmental protection or workplace protection or yeah. food and drug approval, that, that kind of stuff looks like. And, and the, ex the extension of this as a public, sort of a public service is sort of in the aftermath of something bad. So, you know, this comes up, this ends up being a big political headache which is that after a recession, the first things, the first entities to heal are typically banks. You know, we saw these articles in 2020, you know, banks are doing great. Everybody's doing terrible. Mm -hmm. um, in 2009, it was the same way. Goldman's, you know, setting these huge profit records. Um, but you really can't build a, a strong recovery on weak banks, you know. So it's not like, oh, there was oil spill. Let's charge Exxon $5 billion. You know, you kind of can't go after banks and make them more fragile in that moment because you sort, of, you sort of need them. And that, that sort of plays into the lack of, of uh, contests, I guess, in the relationship. Yeah, it's this big problem. You know, the, <laughs> what's the budget thing is, you know, emergency land, but at a penalty rate. But you don't always, you know, you might have reasons not to want to like, you know, force a bank to, you know, put aside all its extra money for, you know, interest payments to the government as opposed to lending it out to the real economy. And uh, mm -hmm. I think this is a real tension in that sort of budget, um, you know, uh, uh, prescription. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the original rate for AIG was like 11 and a half percent or something like that. And they had to cut it because yeah. it was just, it became too onerous. Yeah. Okay, so let's then move on to the to, to paper number two, uh, which is called "Against Being Against the Revolving Door," uh, and and this was this one awesome at, as well, and and will will then lead directly a little bit more directly into the the current events, uh, uh, a few specific current events. So, but let's just start very briefly. You know, uh, give us David both the the revolving door kind of intro, what it is, and what the common complaint against it is yeah so the revolving door is this perception that um, people cycle in and out of governments 
um, and that this is bad because um, uh, when they go in government, they have incentives to um, treat regulated industry nicely because they know they're going to go work for regulated industry in the future and they don't want to burn bridges. Um, and um, when they're outside of government, um, uh, you know, they're taking sort of the inside tips that they learned in government and they're talking to their friends who stayed in government to get themselves sort of uh, preferential treatment. So, you know, the idea is um, the, the problem with DC is lobbyists and where do lobbyists come from? They usually come from Hill jobs where they get to know Congress people and they sort of traffic on those relationships to help regulated industries or people who want stuff from Congress get the things that they want. Um, and so this is thought to be a huge problem and you know, 10 out of 10 presidential candidates are like, Washington's a swamp, I'm gonna clean it up. And the way I'm gonna clean it up is, you know, I'm gonna change ethics rules and we're not gonna have the revolving door problem. Yeah. yeah so exactly. that's, a, that's a problem. And, yeah. you know, I'm a contrarian on this. Yeah. Like, so, yay, revolving door. So that's, my, that's my <laughs> which, yeah, which is, which is, which I love. So, so, and that's so, so now, so let's go ahead and go, let's just go straight to that then. So, so kind of more broadly, you know, how does it kind of work in practice? You know, this is just an awesome moment to say something that just intuitively makes sense. Like what you just explained, is there, there's a reason why it's on every, it's such an easy stump speech to make because it like makes yeah. some intuitive sense. But then you don't have to go too far down, although most people haven't, uh, you know, tell us like what, you know, kind of what some numbers or how the incentives, if you think about the incentives from more than just the shallow level that is on the platform. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, there's a number of ways and and some of these ways, if, you, if I'm right about this, don't totally make the revolving door look good but there are some things that are just generally good about the revolving door so one is maybe we want people cycling in and out of government you know maybe we don't want a career um uh class of mandarins who do one thing and and uh and we want to open up government government service to more people um uh who then can uh go into government and you know provide their talents there and then go out into the private sector and, you know, I don't know, make more money or do that kind of thing. And then when they're out in the private sector, they've probably been thinking about government compliance. So it's not necessarily the case that um, they're going to uh, teach private industry how to evade government regulation. It seems to me that it's very possible that what they'll do is teach private industry, you know, uh, to comply with government regulation. If you do this, I'm pretty sure you're going to get in trouble if you do that. I don't think you will. That's regulatory compliance. That's not regulatory evasion, or at least not necessarily. Um, and then there's this sort of more controversial, somewhat more controversial uh, uh, nature of the revolving door, which is, you know, private industry doesn't have any reason. Uh, bankers wouldn't have any reason to get um, soft on bank regulators out of their regulatory positions. Uh, instead, it's more likely you'd want to hire the hard on bank regulators. One thing is those guys can make a case uh, to their former regulators, like I'm a real tough guy. Uh, so when I tell you that my client didn't do it or whatever, you should take me seriously because, you know, um, I, I'm a serious, uh, you know, uh, regulator of banks. And then, and I think this is sort of an observation I should probably attribute to Matt Levine. And also, if you're at the level of regulatory design, you know, if anything, the incentive is to make the regulatory design so complicated that you're the only person who can understand it, which right. makes your 
you know, leave the administration quote even higher because you're the only way that banks can possibly comply or whatever. <laughs> yep. So, you know, as a model, there's lots of reasons to believe that the revolving door, you know, just apart from the general good of, you know, um, uh, you know, making public service not a lifetime job, but something that everybody can do for part of their life um, uh, is unlikely to result in weak supine regulators and uh, overweeningly powerful and, uh, you know, law uh, ignoring uh, regulated industry. Yeah, so I, I think that's, I think that's, that's such an important take and add to the to uh to the conversation you know the it, Stephen and I were talking a couple of episodes ago I believe it was and now we can maybe can just bring in a couple of examples from the last you know couple of weeks or so last couple of months and uh you know we were talking about Sarah Bloom Raskins who was kind of accused of using her connection at the uh to the Fed to uh, to get this kind of this fintech company uh, a master account at the Kansas City Fed, uh, and Stephen, I don't know if you want to hop in and kind of just repeat real briefly what what your take was, and then we'd love to hear David's take on the on the situation. Yeah, I mean, obviously we have to. I, I think we should take care to to clarify that no evidence. You know, there's no evidence that or no conclusive evidence, I should say that, you know, anything untoward happened. But what I recall my take being is that basically, if you have, it's sort of in the vein of David, what David was just saying, which is that, you know, let's say that Reserve Trust couldn't get a master account, then they hire Sarah Blue Raskin, and then the KC Fed says, okay, you can have a master account. Now, let's say it was that simple. I kind of see that as justifiable because you have a former regulator um, someone with a lot of integrity and you've, you, you know, that sh to me shows a dedication of the reserve trust to regulation, to thinking about how to, you know, be safe and, and be in compliance. Um, so to me, that's real, that's real demonstration. That's a, a concrete thing that the, that reserve trust took, you know, it's a concrete action they took to be more in compliance and to signal their seriousness. So I, I kind of thought, okay, that's, that's okay. Personnel is important. You know, it's important that you have risk management regulation people and not all salespeople or, or, you know, tech bros on your board. So I, I kind of saw that as within the realm of, uh, you know, not untoward. Yeah. I, I sort of see that the same way. I think, um, you know, it's a, she's, she's a tough regulator. And so bringing her on the board while you're trying to manage this complex regulatory process is a commitment to, you know, the seriousness in which you're taking the endeavor. Now, I would be the last to deny that um, I'm sure it's hard for, you know, Fed officials to say no to a meeting with Sarah Bloom Raskin as opposed to somebody they've never heard of. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, I don't want to I don't want to downplay that. Um, I think, um, you know, when you see um, former prosecutors. So, you know, one of the reasons I wrote this paper is because absolutely everybody leaves the Department of Justice at some point. That's a that's a five year job or something like yeah. that. And then you and then you go into her. So there's all these former prosecutors out there who become defense lawyers. Um, uh, and I definitely think they're um, uh, talking to their company about compliance and telling them to fire people who uh, have violated the law and leading internal investigations, which improve compliance. But I also don't doubt that there's something of an old boys club there that um, getting a former prosecutor who the current prosecutors know and like uh, makes that just relationship uh, when there has been some sort of wrongdoing that you need to 
talk to the prosecutors about uh, more complicated um, or uh, or something to think about anyway. Um, but that said, uh, you know, I uh, I think that uh, you know uh, basically. Um, I agree. Putting somebody on your board who's really interested in compliance is, uh, to me, suggests that you're interested in compliance, not that you're interested in evading compliance. Um, and um, I think you can say, like, um, I think you can say this a little more. Uh, we we're going to talk a little bit about the sort of ethics of um, yeah, what's right. going on with examiners and uh, leaving them. But um, I, you know, the growth of uh, of uh, consultants like Promontory, um, you know, I think a lot of what they do is sort of compliancy. And sometimes I think it's it's sort of weird that, that we've sort of created this like business, um, partly through ethics rules. I and mean, I know there the people who join that business are subject to ethics rules, but I, I get a sense that what they do is they go out there and um, help clients navigate the difficult world of regulatory compliance and getting in touch with Washington and, um, uh, and yet that's, uh, that's a place where a lot of former financial regulators end up, you know, spending some time and, um, yeah. uh, uh, and so I don't know, that's a, there's a, there's a revolving door story and I am not here to celebrate promontory, but uh, mm -hmm. I am here to say that, look, it looks to me like one of the reasons for their success is they probably are providing a service and it's not obvious that that service isn't, you know, uh, more law abiding than, um, you know, uh, you know, law evading or whatever. And Caleb, I mean, you can probably, you know, as a, as the Fed history buff, you can attest to this sort of better than anybody. Um, and, and this is, I'm not saying this is for better or for worse, but it seems like this is becoming more of a concern through history. You know, you kind of read these historical accounts and it's like, you know, so-and-so decided to give up their job, you know, making all this money on Wall Street. And, and you know, they, they, they listened to the call to service and became treasury secretary or whatever, you know, it was kind of idolized. And now it's like, you know, if JP, if uh, Jamie Dimon gets made treasury secretary, there's going to be Molotov cocktails, like, you know, on Pennsylvania Avenue. Um, so it seems like that has, that has shifted quite a bit. Yeah. Even since, you know, it's a, even Hank Paulson, right? You know, yeah, even, true. Even, could Hank Paulson in in any administration, Republican or Democratic, get 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 through? Uh, it's, it's not so sure. I'm not so sure. Uh, it's, it's weird, especially on the uh, Democratic side of things like this. Uh, this new hostility to the revolving doors being great for legal academics because we haven't <laughs> sold out, but you know, all these law firm <laughs> partners who used to, and promontory officials for that matter, when you think about, you know, people who are mentioned as possible OCC candidates, uh, they yeah. work for promontory. Um, uh, you know, these guys are now no longer, you know, no longer, you know, they get struck off the, the long list uh, immediately. And, uh, you know, that, that, that leaves a relatively short pool of people who have been in yeah. academia or just gone to think tanks. And, I don't, you know, it's not totally obvious to me whether that's good. Chris Brummer has evinced some concern that really it might um, limit the pool of uh, diverse candidates who can't really afford to yep. take jobs at think tanks when they're looking at the possibility of, you know, a real change in the lifetime wealth that they and their family grew up with. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, um, and uh, if those people are all of a sudden no longer eligible, then, you know, you're going to have a sort of narrow cadre of um, 
of people to recruit from. And, and you know, once again, I, one of the advantages of the revolving door and the George Washingtonian, I work on a farm and then I go win a war and then I go to, back to the farm and then president back to the farm. That kind of thing can't happen anymore. And, uh, you know, uh, I don't know if that's uh, an unalloyed good or anything. Yeah. Yeah. So, so another another one that we want to get you in in the last couple of minutes is that there was some reporting from the Washington Post uh, that showed that the the, uh, the journalists had gone through kind of some org chart of the of the Boston Fed and realized that uh, a bunch of the people working on the kind of the technical side of the potential uh, central bank digital currency, um, a, a handful of the staff had been all hired from this kind of the same. Uh, uh, crypto company called uh, called Circle. It, surprisingly, the article actually didn't gain, I think, as much traction maybe as I as I thought it it, it might have uh, given the climate. But I know there's a there's a lot going on in the world. Uh, but yeah, just wondered if you if you you know saw that and had an opinion on that one. Yeah, that certainly it sort of uh, in some ways looked a little like the sort of insider trading y stuff. Uh, yeah. Oh, right. Or, I mean, you know, like we've got this ethics issue these days at the um, at the rate at the Fed Perfect. or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, you know, I I really don't have a problem with the circle. You know, you're trying to build a stable coin. You know, you can either hire people who have no idea what stable coins are, <laughs> um, uh, or you can hire people who know exactly what a stable coin is because they already built a stable coin. Um, and uh, that to me doesn't seem like uh, a bad way to do things. Um, I also think, um, you, you know, I also think it's, it, um, it's interesting because I don't really see how Circle benefits from a CBDC. I mean, I, there's this right. story out there that they're right. supposed to drive the other stable coins out of business. Um, and I certainly, if there was a stable coin backed by the US government and a stable coin like tether with you know resources, God knows where. Uh, you know, I, I think I'd probably uh, I'd probably you know vote with my feet to the CBDC. Yep. So um, so it wasn't clear to me that um, this somehow is going to benefit Circle in any way. And uh, it was interesting though. Like it was a you know um, it was like like half of Circle's team, right, or something yeah. like that. Yep. Like you know, all of a sudden is like half of the feds team. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it's definitely worth writing a story on that kind of thing, but uh, I think it can be adequately supervised. It's also, you know, it looks like the feds not going to be willing to do a CBDC until they get congressional authorization. So that right there's a, a check in the story, you know, like um, uh, it's not that bo the Boston feds going to issue its own thing, you know, fed circle coin or whatever. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, but that would be that would be a, maybe a bit more alarming, but um, uh, we're a number of steps away, and it seems to me that you know hiring experts to advise you on how to how to do this thing uh, to me that makes a lot of sense. And if that means hiring experts from the private sector who have worked on the sort of similar issue, then then why not go ahead and do that? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, just kind of last last question then, uh, and Stephen, you can jump in if 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 you'd like to, but. Um, you know, are, are there anything else that we haven't covered uh, or, you know, the, 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 the hot take uh, piece was from 2013. And so there's been, you know, it's been a few years since then, but most of what we've talked about has been recent and relevant as well. But yeah, any yeah, last, yeah, any yeah. last minute stuff that, that you want to throw in? Uh, no, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm still against being against the revolving door. Um, yeah. uh, you know, um, uh, I think there's uh, obviously um room for the sorts of waiting periods that you often see um sure. but uh um uh but um you know sort of like a 
it it's going to take you a while before you can work on you can never work on an issue you directly worked on and it's a while before you can um uh, you know one year two years i'm not sure what the right level is before you can um you know go uh to the government agency sure. you were working for to do stuff I, I get that you know you don't want people like taking the confidential material across the street to the private sector and then you know working on that confidential material and using it to push their agenda um yep. so um with that with the right sort of you know sort of guardrails in place though i think uh, i think there's there's something to be said to um uh um the I mean, I think there's something to be said about, uh, and uh, there's there's still a, a there still shouldn't be the bar that the revolving door advocates most worry about. They should, uh, you know, worry less and uh, and revolve more. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. That's awesome. Well, I think that's a perfect place. Uh, that's a perfect place to to wrap it up. Um, so David is at uh, Zaring David. Uh, Stephen is at Stephen Kelly 49 and I am at Caleb Nygaard on Twitter. And then also, uh, again, in the show notes, we'll have links to those two papers that we talked about, uh, as well as a link to, to David's book, uh, which is a really awesome and important uh, take on, you know, we've mostly been talking, actually almost exclusively talking about the U.S. system and how it actually is, is maybe working better than you might think it, it should or the incentives when you dive into them are actually aligned uh, relatively well. Uh, his book is, is similar on an international, uh, on an, on an, looking at the international uh, global financial system. And so highly recommend that as well. Until next time, thanks for listening. Yeah, it's been a pleasure.